Lord, we do thank you as we've seen that you are a God who loves to speak. Thank you that we have your alive and active word in our hands. Thank you that it opens us up and shows us what we're really like. But we thank you that you are a kind and patient God. Thank you that as your word opens it, it's, it, us up, it, it is for our good. And that as you wield it, so you do it to increasingly transform us into the likeness of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. I was reading um, an interesting article last week, an interview with, uh, with Bono, and the, the lead singer of U2. He was an interview with a, a Christian seminary in the US. It's very interesting. And talking about his love of the Psalms. Um, why does he like the Psalms? Not just because he's, a, he's a, a singer and the Psalms are songs, but because of the the reality of them. There's no pretense, there's no gloss, there's no covering stuff up. It's just very real and very honest. So have a look at this on the screen. He says this, I was very struck by it. He said, the psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. And it's that that sets the psalms apart for me, he said. And often I think, gosh, why isn't Christian music more like that? I might expand it to say... Why aren't we more like that at times in terms of how we talk of our faith, of the reality of what it means to, to be a Christian, some of the struggles that we feel, some of the things going on inside us? And we said it's one of the reasons why we're spending time in Psalms over these next few weeks, not simply because we're a church that believes all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training and righteousness, but also because, to use Bono's words, it's brutally honest as a book. We feel a bit awkward as we read it and we see them. It, it portrays, as, as Matthew was saying, as Sarah was teaching the children, it portrays the life of the believer. Story of two generations, two censuses. Do you remember the, the second census, chapter 26 onwards, the second generation? They're, they're much better at trusting God's promises. But the first generation just get it wrong again and again and again. We said this was no Instagram highlights reel. This is no beautifully crafted snapshots of beautiful people looking their best. And you keep going until you get the right one. This is, this is the messy, unfinished nature of faith. And we said we're, we're people like them because we're living between salvation accomplished and salvation consummated. That is, they had been freed, redeemed, rescued from slavery in Egypt. They knew their God. They had seen his power. They had experienced his grace. He had formed them as a people. They knew what the obedient life looked like. He had given them his laws, but they weren't there yet. They weren't in the land. They weren't at the holiday destination, as the kids saw. They found it hard to trust God. They got it wrong. They moaned, they grumbled, it was messy and awkward, they hadn't arrived. Salvation accomplished, but not consummated, and so we said many parallels with us. A people who have been rescued and freed and redeemed by Jesus at the cross. We know our God, we've seen his power, we've experienced his grace, he's, he's formed a people, we know what the obedient life looks like. But we're not there yet. And we get it wrong. 
We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We find it hard to trust. We find ourselves going round and round in circles, making the same mistakes again and again and again. It's messy, it's awkward, we've not arrived. Numbers is a book for people like us. Partly because the reality of the life of faith, of being a believer on a journey, but secondly, we said, because of the one whom we serve, because of who God is, he is relational, he he speaks to them, we said, one verse one. He's not unknowable, distant, far off, out there somewhere, but, but through his tabernacle tent of meeting, we get to know him. By his mediator Moses, he's in the midst of the people, at the very heart of the camp, we said. The very heart of the people's life. He's with them. And we said, if, if we despair that life is meaningless and we're just going nowhere, then Numbers shouts at us, trust the Lord who is directing you in your paths. And we said, unless we despair that that we think God is not with us, that, that we, our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Numbers shouts at us, no God is guiding you on your journey. As Jesus said, I'm with you to the very end of the age. This Numbers is a book for people like us. And I think the fact that it is so badly known is actually to our detriment. It is bad for us. We, we need to get to grips with Numbers. Now, a number of people have asked me this week, do we plan to go through the entire book at the pace of last week? (laughs) That is, two verses per week. I think that will take us about 12 and a half years, which would mean just about ready for Christmas 2029. I'd be 50 and a half. So I'm going to say probably not. The plan will be simply to to zoom in on a few highlights or or lowlights. And I'll try and fill in the gaps in between as well, just so you can see something of what we've missed and something of what's going on. You're, You're very welcome, if you want to read numbers through the week, you're very welcome to do that. I will allow you to do that. Please do. Today we're in chapters 11 and 12. What have we missed out since last week? Again, let me fly over it. Very broad brushstrokes. If you remember that diagram from last week, the three teaching chunks, which I find very hard to say, and the two journeys in between, we're basically, we've missed the rest of the first teaching chunk, chapters 1 to 10. They were blueprints from God, essentially, on how to relate to him. Despite their sin, despite his holiness, how can they have any kind of a relationship? So we said, rest of chapter 1 was the first census, Chapter 2, we got the the geography of the camp with the tabernacle tent of meeting in the middle. Chapter 3 and 4 is a a Levitical census and sort of job descriptions for the Levitical team, how to guard and minister in the tabernacle. Chapter 5 was to do with camp cleansing and atonement. Chapter 6 was the Nazarite vow and then the, the numbers blessing at the end that we might be familiar with when we do our Thanksgiving service. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, that bit. Chapter 7 and 8, more sort of Levitical stuff and consecration details for the tabernacle. Chapter 9, fascinatingly, they they reenact the Passover meal. They re-remember the Lord rescuing them and freeing them from Egypt. And then chapter 10, they begin their journey, basically. Camp breaks up and they begin their trek to the land. 
And so we join the, the story, chapter 11, this first bit of the journeying section. And we've got verses 1 to 3, which give us both a taster and a summary of what's to come. Here is a snapshot of their journeying. It's a shame to say that this is not, this is very normal for them. This is the reality of what it was like. And so 11 verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, the fire died down, so that place was called Taberah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. And it's not a one-off. You probably noticed it as Sarah was reading. Throughout these two chapters, we get cycles of very similar stuff happening. There are basically three cycles. Different reasons that they complain, different rebellion happening, but a very similar outcome for each. So what I'm going to try and do this morning is essentially three things. The first thing is to, to sweep over the passage and to try and give you the three cycles to help you see what's going on. The second thing is to deal with a couple of questions that we might be feeling in our hearts. Now, hang on, how, how does that work? How is God portrayed in these passages? I, I don't really like that very much. And then the third thing will be to look at four applications. Okay, so the first thing is three cycles. The second thing is two questions. And the third thing is four applications. Let's go for the three cycles first. Have a look at the screen. Um, and this will give you a, a basic structure of what happens. Now, it's simplified. You will see there's some variation, but I've tried to give you a, a kind of an overview of what's going on. Um, so, have a look, if you can. The top, then, it begins really with the sin of the people. Different reasons, but they will rebel against God. There's complaining and discontentment in some way. The second thing that happens, then, is that God is angry with them. He is perfectly good, and so they face his justice. The third thing that happens then is there's a crying out and a repentance in some way, usually. Then fourthly, Moses stands in the gap and mediates for his people. And then fifthly, anger dies down, there's reconciliation. Often then there's a, a place naming that happens as well. They name the place that they're at um, in the light of what's just happened to them. And then sooner or later you repeat that three times, like a washing cycle. So what we're going to do, um, I'm going to ask you to try and multitask. And to do sort of two things at the same time. One is to, and you'll have a look at the screen, it should be there, is to have a look at the sort of the cycle that's going on. But the second thing is to have your Bible in your hands and we'll try and marry the verses with the different section of the cycle. Um, so I'm getting you to do a bit of work this morning. There we go. So our first cycle, verses one to three. Uh, so there's your diagram and your graphic. Have a look down at verses 1 to 3. So what's the presenting sin in 1 to 3? They complain about their hardships. That's in verse 1. Where do you see the anger being aroused? End of verse 1. It's fire that consumes them. Next thing then is repentance. The people cry out to God. Start of verse 2. And then Moses mediates for them. End of verse 2. And then the anger abates. There's reconciliation. And they name the place Taberah, verse 3, which means burning. Kind of place of burning. Nice name. That's cycle one. Cycle two. That first one was quick. The second one will be much longer. And this is the second one. And this is more complicated because it, it, it's almost a double cycle. 
that you have the big picture what's happening with the people, but within that you get Moses kind of complaining as well and crying out to God for his help. So what's the initial presenting sin? We'll have a look down at verse 4 to 7 of chapter um, 11. They're complaining about food. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, cucumbers, um, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetites. We never see anything but this manna. What's going on? Well, it talks about the rabble that seemed to start the discontent. And I think technically that's kind of the fringe at the edge of the camp. Um, possibly, probably people from other nationalities who came up with them out of Egypt. But they would rather be back in Egypt. And very quickly then, Israel joins in the complaining. They've got short memories. They've got rose-tinted specks. They've forgotten slavery, oppression, reality of being in Egypt. What they want is meat and fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. And they're driven by their appetites. As sin often is. An interesting thing to note, they, they look back to what they had. They look around to what they don't have. Surely they should have been looking ahead to what they would have. And even looking to what they did have. They had miraculous manna from God. But they don't do that. They look back and they look around. And comparisons always breed discontent. That's, that's the foundation for much advertising. That's why social media, frankly, can be so dangerous. Because comparisons breed discontent. Second step, anger of God. Actually, you get it three times. You get it in verse 10. 11 verse 10, the Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. You get it in 18 to 23. And we'll look at that in a bit, in a bit more depth. But the Lord's anger here is interestingly seen in giving his children what they ask for. He lets them have what they wanted. And that is their judgment and then you get it again in 31 to 33 as well. Uh, verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. And then as I say, this cycle, this second one is more complicated. It doesn't work as it's meant to. Um, you don't really get the people crying out and you don't really get Moses mediating at this point. But what you actually get is Moses crying out and complaining to, to God almost about his burden as being their leader. Have I birthed all these people? Who put me in charge? Who made me mum? What's going on? And then verse 24 to 30, what the Lord does is he, he enables people to come and share the load with Moses. He, he pours out his spirit on them, on particular people for a particular task for a particular time. And then you get reconciliation and the final bit that God's anger abates and they, they name the place, verse 34, Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. Again, an interesting name to remind them. And then there's the third cycle, chapter 12. It looks good. It looks like you're all engaged still. So great, I've not lost you. Um, chapter 12, 1 to 16. And here we have complaining about leadership. 
They're presenting sin. Have a look down, 12, 1 to 3. They're talking against Moses. Miriam and Aaron, that's Moses' brother and sister, began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Did you remember, Moses was the Lord's chosen prophet, and his own brother and sister seemingly, I think there's thinly veiled racism there too, complain about their brother. He was married to a Cushite, an Ethiopian. She had black skin. It's very striking. I'm not quite sure how the two are linked. Maybe they're questioning her suitability as a wife, and so they're questioning his suitability as a prophet. It sounds un- unpleasant and pretty outrageous, and it's wrong. And so the Lord comes down and judges them. You see his anger in uh, verse 4 to 10. Let me just read from uh, 4 to 8 or 9. Uh, Once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out, and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent of, to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He, he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. Thirdly then, repentance is seen because Aaron cries out. So Miriam is left with this skin condition. Strikingly, she becomes, did you notice she becomes white? There's an irony there. She's complained, I think, about Moses' black wife. And so the Lord makes her white, unclean, separate. She has to be removed for a time. And so Aaron cries out, but he doesn't cry out to the Lord. He cries out to Moses, perhaps reaffirming Moses' position as the prophet, humbling Aaron. Moses mediates, verse 14 to 15, cries out to God, and after seven days outside the the camp, then Miriam can come back in again. And then there's reconciliation. We, we assume she's back in. They move again. There's no place naming. It's already called Hazaroth. But very briefly then, they, there are three cycles that you see which seem to be pretty normative for the people as they travel. This is a snapshot of normal family life for the people of God as they go through the wilderness. Two questions maybe that it's just worth thinking about. Perhaps there are questions that you've got. Perhaps there are questions that your friends might have. The first one is this. How can God do this to his people? It's interesting, isn't it? He judges them. He punishes his people. We see as the book goes on, the first generation, except for two, don't make it. They don't reach the land. It's a 38, 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they're judged. And it feels difficult, and it feels harsh, and it feels raw, and we're a bit embarrassed by it. 
And we think it's kind of ammunition for the sort of people who say, well, the God of the Old Testament is, is grumpy and angry and the God of the New is nice and kind. What would you say? Maybe it's your question. Maybe you're just here looking in on Christian things and that's a question that you've got. What do we do with passages like this? Maybe you're not quite sure where you stand. You struggle with this. Maybe you've been here for decades and you're still not quite sure where you stand. And we wrestle with passages like this, how God is portrayed in this way. A few thoughts. I've, um, I've said before, Maudlin Road, that it, as parents, it's very easy to lose your sense of smell. You don't notice it, but the, uh, the banana that's been in the car for weeks is rotting under the seat. The nappy that's been in the bathroom for, for days and you've just not quite realised. And Maybe it's the Lord's kindness, maybe it's a gift from him that he inflicts this thing upon parents. But it takes a guest or a visitor to come round and sort of look at you strangely and say, can you smell something? No, I'm fine. I think that's us with sin. Our rebellion against God, we've, we easily lose our sense of smell. We just don't notice our sin anymore. We downplay the severity of it. We, we downplay the goodness and holiness of God. We downplay the reality of sin in our hearts. We just flirt with it. We don't care that much. We don't see how much it offends God. And so we read of 11 verse 1, fire from God burned among them, consumed some of the outskirts of the camp, and we struggle and we say, well, that seems a bit of an overreaction. But maybe God is real. Maybe he is actually pure and holy. Maybe he really does detest our sin and our rebellion. Maybe he really gets angry with sin. Maybe he really judges. I wonder if for many of us, for too many of us perhaps, our understanding of God has come from the eyes of our culture and so we think, well, God is love. And we define that love in such a way that it means I'm at the centre and I get what I want and God wants me to be happy and fulfilled and he doesn't want to challenge me he doesn't want to make me feel uncomfortable ever he certainly won't ever be angry with me and if that's us this morning if that's the kind of thing we think then can i urge you to let these harder passages expand and reshape your understanding of who god is as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures not in who you want him to be, that's essentially idolatry, that's essentially constructing the kind of God we want and the kind of God we like, rather than the kind of God who's revealed himself to us. Let these awkward passages push you and expand your understanding of God. It's probably worth saying, I think there was patience and restraint from the Lord. Even here, it was just the edge of the camp. It was just the fringe. It was just the riffraff. He's still committed to his promises. His people will still receive their inheritance. But sin matters. 
and we've lost our sense of smell. I think it also shows us, and we'll have more on this in a bit, but how important the cross is. These, these graphic, shocking pictures, images of the accounts of God's anger against his sinful people ought to make us look at the cross afresh with thankful hearts. We see how much he loves us because we see how much it costs him. But more on that in a bit. The other thing to question which kind of we, we might be asking is, well, who's really in charge here? Is it God or is it Moses? What do we mean by that? At times it sort of feels like, well, God's not really in control of himself. He's a slightly grumpy fellow. He's probably not had enough sleep and he's got out of bed on the wrong side this morning and he's got this short fuse and keeps sort of bursting in angry things with, with his wayward kids. And then he seems to rely on this Moses to come and sort of placate him and calm him down. What's going on there? What are we to make of a God like this? How does that work? Does Moses change God's mind? What's the story there? I think this is a complicated one. I will say more on this in weeks to come. But just two things briefly for now. The first, as we've just said, God cannot deny who he is. He is perfectly good and holy and just. And therefore, he can't just pretend that sin doesn't happen. He can't turn a blind eye to it, as perhaps parents here might. Do you think your small child is drawing on the wall with a yellow crayon? You can just kind of forgive them and let them get away with that one. God can't do that because he is perfectly just. Sin must be punished and dealt with. But remember as well, this is God's plan. He appointed Moses as the mediator, as the one to come and stand in between, the one who would deal with the sin of his people to some extent. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, Moses, the sacrificial system is not a way of us twisting God's arm, but it is the kind gift from him that his people might relate to him. I think it's fair to say as well, there's something of a, of, a, of a language thing going on as well. So describing the way things appear to the naked eye, which means that human authors help us to be able to grapple with concepts and ideas and understand something of what God's like, to engage our limited hearts and minds with an infinite God, in a sense to, to make the, the unknowable knowable. But more on that in weeks to come. So there's two questions. How can God do this to his people? Who is in charge, God or Moses? Now four applications as we think through what these chapters mean for us tomorrow. It might be that, again, through home groups, we have opportunity to chew some of these things over together in, in smaller communities, in smaller groups, and to pray for each other in some of these things. Two challenges and two encouragements from these chapters. First one is this, and that is we complain and we sin. And it is very easy for us to say, well, I would never do that. I can't quite believe they've done that. Goodness me, they're forgetful. And we tut and we shake our heads. But we do that at our peril, because they're a mirror for us. Again, we'll see it in later weeks, but Paul will use this account in numbers, numbers more generally, and say, look at them and their example, and look at them in the wilderness, 
And don't do that. They are a warning for us. They are a warning for us to not be like them. And yet mine is a heart that very easily complains. Isn't yours? Verse 1, I can complain about my hardships till the cows come home, if you'll just let me. And frankly, my hardships are nothing compared to what they've been through. Or verse 4, I can complain about what the Lord has not provided for me, not so much food, but maybe my my lot in life, so to speak. The, The grass is very much easily greener over there. I can look back and remember what it was like then, or I can, I can look around and see what they've got and what I haven't got. Comparisons breed discontentment. Actually, I was reminded, if you were here, um, before Christmas, we thought about some similar things in Philippians. Remember with Paul, we were thinking about contentment and joy. And we were struck by the fact that he didn't look for his contentment and joy in, in the stuff, in the, the trimmings and the trappings of life. But he found contentment and joy in Christ. In all that he had in Christ. And so there was Paul in prison, full of joy. He had an awful lot to complain about. But he didn't because he knew he was in Christ. And so for me, as I read these two chapters, 11 and 12... And I see my lack of thankfulness and I see my propensity to complain. And I see something of God's reaction to that, his anger against his people. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to say sorry. I dare say you're with me in that. The second thing to say is this, and that is, I'm struck by the fact that God judges them by giving them what they want. So you get a glimpse of it in 11, 19 to 20. God says, you want meat? Right. Catch the quail. Verse 19, you won't eat it for just one day or two or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and, and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord." kind of picture of being overrun, of drowning in meat. God says, okay, have it. Let's see how you get on. God judges them by giving them what they want. And then fast forward to Romans chapter 1, and Paul does a similar thing. He says, at times God gives rebellious people over to what they want. There's an exchange, a, a handing over that Paul talks about. Do you remember man, mankind suppresses what it knows of God, runs after other things, and at times he says, okay. He doesn't restrain them in, in their foolishness, but he, he, he lets us off the leash, and the things that we worship become the things that we become like, and we're dehumanized and we're destroyed. God judges people by giving them what they want. Actually, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea very starkly as he talks about hell. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. That is, finally, God says, you don't want me? Okay, you won't have me. And you won't have any of my goodness and the good things that I give, and that will be your lot forever. Sometimes God judges by giving people what they want. He lets us have our foolish desires. Two challenges, now two encouragements. For us, living this side of the cross, in these dark chapters, there are, I think, two arrows, at least, with kind of flashing neon lights pointing us ahead to the new covenant. Glorious, beautiful truths for us to chew on. The first is that God provides a permanent mediator. What does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy, God will promise that one will come, like Moses, and he will be a prophet to speak his words. But the thing that I'm struck by when we look at Moses, particularly in chapters like this, is he wasn't just a prophet who spoke. Moses was a mediator who came to deal with God's sin, God's right anger against his people's sin. And so as Paul then later writes to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Did you see, you read these chapters in Numbers and we're thinking, this is so frustrating. This is so frustrating. We know they will do it again, and they do do it again. And so Moses mediates again. And we think, I've got an idea what they need. They need a mediator who can last forever. Because the people are going to keep getting it wrong, aren't they? If only there was a way that God could provide some sort of permanent mediator to deal with his people's sin. And we have one because we have Christ. He is the one mediator between God and mankind. Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Friends, if you're someone who knows something of the reality of your sin, who knows the reality of your hearts to run after other things, and you read Numbers 11 and 12 and you think, do you know that feels just like me? This would be a great day to turn to that eternal mediator for yourself, the permanent mediator who deals with your sin before an angry God. If you will trust him, if you will receive that gift, then your sin is dealt with forever. God provides a permanent mediator. And fourthly, God gives his spirit to his people. Have a look down at 1129. I have to admit, I, I almost missed it on the way past when I first started preparing these passages. It's a really interesting little verse. Do you remember it's the second cycle of grumbling and rebellion and it's that sort of bit in the middle that means it doesn't quite fit as it's meant to and Moses complains and says who made me mum and God says I'm going to give you some help I'm going to put people there with you and so Moses replies are you jealous for my sake I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them 
That is no longer just certain people for a certain time for certain tasks. But Moses is looking for a time when everybody, all the Lord's people, would have God's spirit on them. And he has. If you were here a few weeks ago with Andy, we were looking in Acts chapter 2 and we saw that. Under the new covenant, the Lord has poured out his spirit upon his people. We're all prophets now, in a sense. We all have the ability to speak for the Lord. Peter will quote Joel at Pentecost. We'll be there in a couple of weeks as we nip back to Acts 2. And Joel says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And, and he's done it. And we get a glimpse of it here in Numbers. But it's filled out as the pages turn on and as the story unfolds, as, as his spirit is poured out on his people. So he's with us and so he enables us to live for him. And he comes to dwell in us, not just corporately, but in individuals. Which I think means this. I think we get a glimpse in 1129 that, that in a sense, the cycle begins to be broken. Because I think it means under the new covenant, we don't have to be a people quite like the numbers generation because we have God living in us by his spirit. We are new covenant believers. We have hearts of flesh. We have God transforming us. We have the ability to say no to sin because he lives in us. We have the ability to say yes to him because he lives in us. And we still get it wrong. But under the new covenant, we can be hopeful that he is at work transforming us. Because he's answered the prayer of Moses. He has given his spirit to his people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we confess before you the tendency that we have to sin and complaining. And we confess that we see ourselves in the numbers generation. And so we thank you for the permanent mediator that you've given us in Christ. Thank you that he comes and intercedes for his people. Thank you that he has dealt with your anger against their sin once and for all. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit who is at work in us, transforming us more into the likeness of your son. Thank you that you've given us hearts of flesh under the new covenant. Thank you that you're changing us. Help us please to be those who trust your promises. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dan. We're going to... I say, Father, please, as we head out to this week, and all that this week means for each of us, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you? And if life is good then might we keep our eyes fixed on you. And if life is hard, 
Might we keep our eyes fixed on you. Guard us, please, from being those who complain and moan and grumble. But would our contentment come from being found in Christ as we recognise afresh all that we have in him? And would you be at work in us by the power of your Spirit? We thank you for your Holy Spirit transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Might we be those this week who say no to sin and who say yes to living your way. Change us, we pray. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In his name, amen.